Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop it. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. You are listening to part two of my conversation with David Venable as we discuss Joel Schumacher's Falling Down. If you have not listened to part one of our discussion, pause the audio now and go back and listen to part one. I feel like the breakdown of this movie was so important with everything that's been going on and it just couldn't be contained in one episode. So pause if you haven't listened to it, go back, check it out. Once you have, Please enjoy part two of my discussion with director David Andrew Vanable as we review Joel Schumacher's 1993 masterpiece, Falling Down. Well, and, and the thing that it ignores is that, you know, imagine, you know, we, we can we can kind of um, fan fiction out the possible future of that character you know of the daughter um who almost definitely would have both some sort of underlying trauma and resentment that they just happily went through their birthday party and the entire time their father was dead yeah you know and and it it really is it reminds me of that same sort of thing where it's like when you leave these problems to fester and, and come back to them later it's just going to get worse and it's just going to, you know, it's like I said, fester, you know, it's just going to, by not addressing them in the moment, you are just allowing things to gradually get worse. And look, the, the vast majority of people are going to, to, um, are going to, are going to, uh, satiate themselves. They're going to, uh, uh, inebriate themselves with, uh, TV or consumerism or distractions, the masses, right? Opiate of the masses, exactly, and ignore the festering problem, but it is there. And unfortunately, inevitably, it will it will erupt in violence in some manner. Now, whether we choose to support said violence, like say, for example, people looting stores due to the protests and the Black Lives Matters marches, or whether we we choose to condemn, i.e some violent person shooting up a school and i'm not equating the two okay clearly one is better than the other right but it is coming from a similar place of anger and rage and we're not addressing it when we're out to brunch or on tv Um, at the very end when when defense essentially orchestrates his own suicide he draws a parallel to old westerns much like with Coca-Cola, this guy's a byproduct of this TV sort of view of America where there are good guys and bad guys. He even asks himself, am I the bad guy? Doesn't dawn on him. And even as he starts to realize that he is, in fact, the bad guy, he looks at Pendergrass as the good guy, as the sheriff, which is also not true, which is also just as much of an illusion as the idea that he was the good guy. I, I, was, in a, I was in a class at one point that I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, I've always had a, a uh, rocky relationship to Westerns in that they have always represented a kind of um, a, a masculinity that I've never identified with, a uh, Americana I've never identified with. Um, but I was in this class that was, you know, um, the American Western in relation to American history. Um, and it was talking about those things exactly about how, you know, we associate, you know, the American Western with, 
um, classic American values um, uh, with um, uh, classic American masculinity. You know, you've got your John Wayne archetype. You've got your um, easily identifiable bad guys. You know, they all wear black. Sometimes we're know. people of color. The Mexicans exactly. or the Indians or um, whatever. And I think that, you know... Um, it is that again has done very purposefully to tie those things in which you know my favorite westerns have always been those things that actually kind of inverted that like the subtle homoeroticism of something like assassination of jesse james which is it's also just a brilliant film but um you know um to tie it to those those classic american things you know his hair is styled from like the 1950s the western was very popular in the 1950s it was you know gi um, joe uh, I mean, at one point the yeah, uh, it, the female copper says that he's still dressed like gi joe another americana fantasy of what of what soldiers are like right this fantasy this fallacy that uh, troops american troops marines army whatever are somehow these like classic good guys you know, that they represent um, the protectors of America with no nuance applied to the fact that they're individuals and some of which some of which have vastly differencing ideologies and personalities, but that they're still really the foot soldiers of the American industrial complex. Yep. Yeah. And it's which is, again, funny because you look at um, was it Eisenhower? Yeah. Um, who uh, made the comment about how, you know, we, if we aren't careful, we will de- devolve into the American and uh, mil- uh, a military complex. Um, so even then, in this era that we are idolizing, even then they are warning against the exact things that we were, we would eventually become. Uh, was it Eisenhower or was it Roosevelt? Well, I can't the, the remember. The key of it is, and, and when you look at this movie, it's, I mean, this movie is what, 20, 17 years old or something like that? No. It is, uh, years old. it is, yeah, 27. 30 years old, okay? And so many of the themes within it are so relevant to right now. And I really hope that people take a look at movies like that. And, and to a lesser degree, much lesser degree, Fight Club and Joker, but trying to understand that this doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not something that's a simple matter of privilege or of... Um, spoiled bratedness, you know? I don't know if that's an f- exact phrase, but I'm going to use it as a technical term. Spoiled bratedness. That's kind of what we... That's kind of how we view... The, that's the lens that we view these these very violent uprisings, these violent actions. Um, and it's it's more than that. We prop up and we live in and we contribute to a society that breeds people like defense. It is an inevitable and we can choose to be Pendergrass and just kind of go along with it and view them as like, you're just a nut, you know, but, but we're all complicit in that. And I think that's why it's so important to look beyond just this terminology of white male rage. It's just so dismissively because there are almost no quote unquote good guys in this movie. They are all villains. Even the people like the gang members and the Korean uh, owner and the uh, um, the homeless guy in the park and, and the, the construction worker, you know, all of these people are bad people because this society is a bad society. You know, the only people who are victims are defense's wife and child because they represent those of us who do not contribute or who do not want to contribute, who do not want to be a part of 
the horrors that capitalism has built around us. It's hard for people to digest because it kind of makes everyone complicit in it. And I don't have an answer on how to get above it. You know, we can all we can all be tankies and pretend that the revolution is coming, but that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is we're probably going to live much like his wife in constant fear and anxiety. And that's it. It's not it, if you want to just say it's all just all white men are bad. OK, get rid of all white men and then see what happens. The same fucking shit, because if you haven't changed the root of the problem, you're not going to change the outcome. I'm going to request that you get rid of all white men at least a little further into my career. <laughs> you know, I'd like to like just wait sure. a little while, yeah, okay. please. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you are absolutely right. I think that you really are. And, um, you know, the only thing that we can do, you know, we can't allow that, that pessimistic reality of, of the futility of it to absorb us completely, you know, um, we've got to work towards a better, as silly as it sounds, as, as cartoonish as it sounds, work towards a better future as best as we can while still acknowledging the difficulty Absolutely. of it. That's one thing that's always frustrated me is the, um, the um, blind optimism of the expectation of, of progress and change when in actuality sometimes you have to recognize the fact that you, what you may be doing is fighting a futile fight, but that doesn't mean it's not exactly. worthwhile. And and really, I mean, we talked a little bit off air about sort of the, the current cancel wars that are going on. And again, I'll, I'll draw the same analogy that I drew earlier. To me, if you're just trying to cancel people who are quote unquote problematic, you're no, you're doing nothing different than those who want to poor, who, who want to push poor people and minorities into ghettos, people who want to push people of mental illness onto the streets you just want them out of your backyard. Your defense, your Pendergast, you are exactly the villain in this story. Because if that's your only goal is to just get rid of people, to get them out of your viewpoint. And look, I'm not saying you shouldn't hold people accountable. You should. But what are we doing to change it? Because you get rid of, it's like a Hydra. You get rid of one problematic person. You get, one of, you get rid of one white male rager. And you'll get two more because you haven't changed anything. You haven't contributed to changing everything. You are complicit in the larger issue. There is no golden age except for what we create. And I think this is why, to me, it is so important to celebrate a filmmaker like Joel Schumacher beyond some of his campier works because, man, I can't think of a movie that hits as as home as this one in in a way that is so subtle and not on the head like joker you know that really presents everything and really lets you digest it and the deeper we can digest it the deeper we can understand that canceling is not the issue if you don't solve the problem it's just a factory right this is and people think about it like a factory right like well we just have a few defective toys right we have a few defective beings it's not the reality reality of it is is that this current system that we live in this environment that we live in this capitalistic city and society that we are underneath is going to produce these type of people it is the nature of its of its being and so we have to try to push against it that's that to me is the deeper message of this and where i think that that article that kind of spawned this whole retrospective 
falls way short of the mark because it doesn't it doesn't really give it its due credit you know it would be like looking at the nipples on the bat suit and not understanding that there was a way deeper mindset behind them exactly so with that said uh we have a few questions if you want to answer with me oh definitely all right, let's love see if to. i can search them all out um, I do highly recommend on the topic that we were discussing, you know, listeners check out the article by Mark Fisher, um, Exiting the Vampire Castle, talking about um, building comradeship and solidarity instead of doing capital's work for it by condemning and abusing each other. 100%. I, I think that is dead on. Questions from Macarette. Jason Nedick asks, so what are some other films that tell the story of an individual or group of people who lose it under the pressure of everyday life, but don't quite make it as anti-system stories? I think we've talked about a few of those. Um, uh, I think the best example of that would be Do the Right Thing. Uh, well, see, so Do the Right Thing, you know, it, it's interesting because it's a it's a exploration of a community having that breakdown. And there is a, a catalyst moment with the death of Radio Rahim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Mookie kind of steps in to become the voice of that community in that moment when he starts tearing down the, the uh, throws the uh, trash can through right. the window of the, uh, the pizza parlor. But I think that, you know, um, you know, Joker was, when it came out, there were a lot of comparisons to the work of Martin Scorsese, um, primarily, you know, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. And I think Taxi Driver is, is a very good example of that kind of, of film, right. you know, of that, of that, you know, one man losing his grips on reality, um, his, his grip on reality in the face of a, of a uncaring society and city, um, which, you know, I would also tie in another Paul Schrader film, which I think is just so good, uh, First Reformed, mm. um, which is, you know, um, just a that was just so unbelievably snubbed um it's it's kind of I, I, have you seen first reformed I'm not no so first reformed um was written and directed by schrader and it stars ethan hawk in a role that definitely he definitely deserved a nomination he did not get one which a lot of people called that a, a big snub uh it's kind of um uh schrader's take on adaptation or an adaptation of uh, Diary of a Country Priest and Bergman's uh, Winterlight. Uh-huh. But but it, it deals a lot more with the themes that he kind of explored in Taxi Driver with the one man who is so beaten down by a society um, and beaten down by the, the world that he slips into this dark, um, this dark place. Um, a lot of it having to do with, um, you know, they, they use uh, climate change as a as a vessel to get to the place that they're talking. Because, you know, he's he's a priest who is talking to a parishioner who is um, uh, struggling with the will to go on in life because he's talking about how climate change will inevitably make, you know, living a nightmare. Um, but, you know the way that they go about it, you know, um, that's, that's the setting and it is important to the narrative, but it's more so to do with this, this priest who is dealing with, uh, rampant, uh, capitalist, um, uh, co-option of faith. Right. Um, and you know, rampant capitalist excess destroying the environment in which we live. You know, there's a great moment where he 
is starting to really think a certain way where he changes the sign uh, at the church to say, will God forgive us? Um, and I, I think that, you know, so that's, that's a really good example of that. Um, do you have any other ones? that you? Well, I, it just made me think that one of the reasons why, uh, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, I guess, but movies like that, movies that snub an Ethan Hawke or, or movie or Ethan Hunt, Ethan Hawke. Which one is the uh, actor? Ethan Ethan Hawke. I was get Ethan Hawke. Ethan Ethan Hunt is know, the character from. And Mission it always Impossible. irritates me that they named him so close because I <laughs> constantly fuck that up. Um, yeah. Movies like that that always sort of either best case scenario get stub snubbed or else are outright um, dismissed, like Joker. Which again, I don't think it's like it's a good movie. It's a beautifully shot movie, but like it's definitely Psych One Hundred One philosophy on capitalism and its effects right it's it's the bro it's, it's like the bro who, science version of it it's like someone who like um uh was given note cards that had the words um anarchy and friedrich nietzsche yeah. on them and they're just kind of like oh okay yeah all right yeah it's the cliff notes um, version of it um yeah but but i think part of it is because it makes people feel really uncomfortable taxi driver joker fight club falling down um first reform, first reform so. all these movies typically and I, and I left out do the right thing for for a specific reason they typically have white male protagonists and they try to present a message that shows how these type of people are bred are created and that makes people feel very uncomfortable because of exactly what we talked about when we we're talking about falling down which is that we're complicit in it and no one wants to believe that no one wants to believe that you have to upheaval everything and start fresh they just want to believe that it's a few bad apples. And, um, you know, in contemporary view of politics, like in, in modern contemporary view of politics, especially liberalism, neoliberalism, and even progressiveness and leftistness, leftism, you would not dare to criticize a film like Do the Right Thing, nor should you, right? Because the protagonist is African-American. And... One of the things that I had, and I don't want to get diverged too far into like ranting about identity politics, but one of the things it does is it separates and it divides everyone. And um, I think all of these movies that we've listed do, to varying degrees, good jobs of explaining a larger issue. And we shouldn't dismiss them based on the color of people's skin, you know? And in fact, and really, Do the Right Thing was dismissed. It was, yeah. That Ebert um, has an essay in the the I don't I think it's in the the new Criterion release, but um, in the previous one I, I remember seeing it that discusses how um, he came out of an audience who had watched it and everyone was saying, you know, how could how could they tear down that pizza parlor? How could they burn down the pizza parlor? They were so good to them, um, and you know, it was it was. Uh, the film was celebrated for its technical achievements and, and its complexity, but that was a constant complaint, especially amongst liberal Americans. Um, and, you know, Ebert came out and he was saying, you know, it's amazing that all these people are talking about the pizza parlor. No one is talking about Radio Rahim, who is dead. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a good example of, of, you know, the difference between someone with more progressive ideals and someone who is more of a neoliberal when it comes down to these things where they're talking about they're still protecting capital. They're still protecting, you know, property. 
Jude Walko, a.k.a. The Hollywood Hobro, asks, Name the best aspects of the trifecta of the Batman series, being Burton, Schumacher, and Nolan. I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, ooh, you want to go first with yeah. this? I know you're a big Burton fan. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I think that um, each of them really explored a different facet of the Batman comic book history. You have in the Burton films this very gothic fairy tale perspective on the Batman. It's very hyper reality, which is of course a, a Burton special, right? Um, I don't think that you can, there is no equal to the aesthetic in the Burton films, right? Especially the second one, especially returns. Especially returns. With Mike, actually, I might love more than the first one. Um, Wait, it's, re- that's, that's, um, yeah, sorry. I was just making sure that I was, yeah. Returns yeah. Bert, yeah just... Burton did both. Um, there's something very beautiful about this dark fairy tale. And in a lot of ways, that's what the Burton films do. They create a mythos, you know, it's obviously not real. It's not meant to look real. It's meant to be an escape into another world, a world in which it is possible that a dude would dress up like a bat to face a clown or an obese penguin dude who lived in the sewers and um god i love devito yeah that. devito's great DeVito's so it's so and um he's so disgusting so really i love that i love that like that he was able to take this character and remember this is coming out of the books when like the last time you saw batman on screen and i'll get to this was the campiness of the schumacher films right so he was able to take it into a darker world a, a real fantastical world and and that's I love world building, so I just enjoy that immensely. Um, with the Schumacher, you know, Batman and Robin sucks a lot, but but I remember when Batman Begins came out. No, sorry, um, what, the, what is Forever? Yes, Batman Forever. That's the only movie I've seen at midnight, like opening day, because I was a kid when it came out. Me and my dad stayed up and watched it, and it was exploring the campiness of Batman in the '60s, the psychedelic nature of it through the lens of the 90s and it's its own form of world building but it explores the psychedelic nature of so many batman stories that probably a person like joel schumacher grew up with in a way that felt modern for the time even if it feels aged now now the performances are way way over the top and he did some he did some effort to try to explore the psychological nature of batman in a way that burton never really bothered with but but mostly i think it was a really interesting aspect of distilling the silliness and the campiness of the batman 60 series and the um and the this more psychedelic or comic book aspect of it into something that felt relevant and um and then with the nolan stuff there's a gravitas to his films, obviously. There, there's an attempt to ground it in reality. And also, I think in The Dark Knight, you have your really first post-9-11 noir film in a way in a, in a way that has... I mean, he really... And, and a lot of people criticize Nolan because they're not quite sure where he lands on this idea of fascism as a ways to an end. But it's worth exploring the question. I, I think that, you know, I saw this really interesting... Um, uh, fan theory like a long time ago um, that discussed uh, it discussed how, how they believe that the Schumacher films are Batman films within the Burton universe. Oh, interesting. So basically everything, yeah, so like basically, you know, 
um, the character of Batman exists in the in the Burton universe and has been adapted to uh, the screen, and and because everything in the Schumacher films is this next logical campy step um, from the Burton world, you know, it's, it's it's a continuation. Exactly, it's it's you know what would happen if you ran the filter of Batman through the entertainment filter within a fictional world that's already so over the top itself. So I, I thought that was a pretty interesting, I don't believe it, of course, like, but I think but that I like it's, it. it's a, a, yeah, I like it. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, when I grew up, you know, Burton was, was one of my favorite filmmakers when I was younger, um, by far was, uh, my favorite filmmaker probably at the age of like 14 or so, because he, approach filmmaking in a way that I, I had never seen anyone do before. Um, and I think that, you know, I've always loved Batman. Um, you know, I grew up in the, in the 90s, so it was post Burton's first movie and then, you know, just old enough to see the second one, you know, in my, in my youth. And then, of course, Batman, the animated series, which I still to this day, I think is top two representations of Batman Absolutely. in media. Maybe, maybe the top one for me. The only thing that that does it better to me is the Arkham Universe and video games. Okay, that's fair. Because, yeah. and largely it's because it's got all of the best things of all of them. You know, because it's got like the voice cast yeah. from the uh, from the uh, animated series and a lot of the writers like Paul Dini and Bruce Tim. I think both ha- both have a lot to do with the uh, video games, but it, it does have you know something that I really do love about the Nolan verse, which is. Um, uh, explanations of, of characters that is based somewhat in reality sure. you know mm-hmm. um i'm also a bigger fan nowadays of of nolan's filmmaking style than i am burton's um i'm not a big nolan fan but i think that you know it's undeniable like the prowess that he shows in something like the dark knight um as a filmmaker just certain shots the um the uh uh, shot of you know Ledger with his head out of the window is just so iconic. You know, yeah. um, well, you mentioned earlier but, uh, that Schumacher was kind of a, a smart Michael Bay. I yeah, think I think yeah. a, lot, a lot of ways uh, Nolan is something of that as well. I, it's interesting. I, I actually like made a um, a mental list where it was uh, you know the different kinds of filmmakers. There are you know. Um, technical filmmakers who focus on the technical aspects of things and like you've kind of got a sliding scale when it comes down to on one hand you've got the popcorn and then on the other you've got the art house Mm -hmm. but they're all like similar within that vein and on you know the popcorn end you've got your Michael Bay's you've got your Luc Besson's um, and you've and he's kind of even drifting towards the art house every once in a while and then you've got Joel Schumacher who's also kind of sort of in the middle there you know and occasionally to the very far bay side of things then the other end you've got you know your david fincher's who are very technical and but they're still kind of art house filmmakers in a way um or at least they're prestige filmmakers and then you've got you know christopher nolan who again very technical very um he doesn't he directs with his brain not with his heart if that makes sense i could absolutely see that um you know, whereas someone like Lynch is directing with his, his heart, you know, he's just, uh, uh, or, or Cronenberg is directing, uh, not even with their heart, with their subconscious. Yeah, there's a deeper um, level of, of uh, it's like the difference between well structure and stream of consciousness. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, um, 
I definitely think that Nolan is is a prime example of that. I am I'm directing from, and, I, and I'd say that like even someone like Stanley Kubrick is is in that um, is in that I am directing with my consciousness. I'm I'm fully aware of all, all of the technical aspects of what I'm doing. I'm fully aware of all of the uh, the um, the the science behind everything that I'm doing. Um, of course, Kubrick also had a lot of creativity in it that I think that it's if if Nolan lacks in anything, it is that aspect of of you know filmmaking when it comes down to like the Kubrick versus Nolan debate, which some people compare the two. I, I could see that. I, I anyway. heard a long time ago that there was, I, I think this is overly simplistic, but there's two types of filmmakers. There's um, Jean-Luc Godard and there's yeah. George Lucas. And That's a very oversimplification, but I can see that being the dividing yeah, line. And yeah, you can, and you can see sure. where like some people kind of lie on that spectrum. If those are the, uh, let's put it this way, if those are the polar vortexes, then you can kind of see where other filmmakers sort of lie along that spectrum. Exactly. So there you go. I kind of want to fight both of those. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I love, I love them both. Um, certainly, but I feel like hanging out with either of them would just be just a drag. Amira Reyes asks, do you believe sending movies straight to streaming eliminates some of the quality experience of a movie? Like if the work that goes into making a movie diminishes in value when a movie is streamed? Yes. Um, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've talked about it prior, but I, I definitely think that there is that. You know, I think that you know part of part of filmmaking or, or, or part of um, uh, uh, the film community in, in general, to me, like that is so amazing, so celebratory is um, is the ritual. You know, the um, the ceremonial aspect of going to a theater. You know, um, it's it allows you a level of focus that you just yeah. do not get outside of it. You know, um, you're in a darkened room, you know, people, and this is talking of course about people who don't have private theaters do, and I stuff think like that. I think that. your point um, is still even applies to them. Yeah. It, it's just something about going to a specific location to, uh, do nothing but watch yeah. a film, you know, to put yourself in a darkened room and, and truly, um, immerse yourself in an art form um, or an or an entertainment form, um, and I think that you know, with things going direct to streaming, um, it, it eliminates some of that um, pomp, you know, some of that uh, that that special quality that that you we well, we, we, we get talked from about off air sort of um, our approaches to meditation, right? And for me, who's yeah. a practitioner, a magician, who uh, regularly practices ritualistic magic and, and ceremony and ritual, to me, there is importance in that because it helps put you in the, the right mindset. And um, sure, anyone could meditate anywhere, but there's something special about when you make a ritual out of it. I think the same thing is, is the case for filmmaking, to echo your sentiments. I know I have a huge yeah. TV and pretty good speakers and I could turn all the lights off too and I can make popcorn at home it's just not the same my attention is, is split uh, if I see something in the movie that makes me want to look it up I do in real time when you're in a movie theater there's a there's also not only is it just the ritual of the darkened lights and the the centered focus but there's also a community you're also experiencing a movie with other people your energy and their energies are intermixing if there's something funny, I'll give you a great example. Um, have you seen Danzig's Veronica? 
Oh no, but I've wanted okay, to. It's, it looks it looks terrible and amazing. It is not what you would consider a classically good film. But yeah. when I watched it in an audience in a theater full of people, it was great. And when I watched it at home, it was a lot less great. And that shared experience is vital to any artistic uh, offering. And I hate the chain uh, uh, movie theaters because they they don't they don't hold any they don't hold the uh, the screen sacred as people are on their phones and talking and crying and all that other shit. But like you know the New Beverly here in Los Angeles, which is owned by Tarantino. God, I love the New Beverly. You know, or uh, Cinetech. Cinetech. I just went to a drive-in movie theater. That Cinetech. How was that? It was very cool. I hadn't been in years, and um, there are a lot of smaller uh, art house type movie theaters that even even make the movie going experience that much more special so i don't begrudge people who release streaming uh the movie theater is not for every every flick and unfortunately due to the pricing of so many theater experiences smaller more independent more art housey films don't really get the luxury of going into theaters you know they've got to you know just it's, it's cost prohibitive it's it's uh, what's the term economically in non no longer economically viable, you know, um, but so uh, you know it's gonna be it's gonna be something of a balancing act, but I think for a lot of films yes removing the theater experience will ultimately be detrimental to the experience of the art, but um, right now it seems like the only financial a viable solution to getting films out there that maybe aren't backed by massive studio budgets. And that's, that, that's something that, you know, makes me so sad is that, um, I think we may have briefly discussed this, even if it was off air last time I was there. Um, but, um, we discussed, you know, how the smaller budgets are being offered up like the media there's a, a death of the medium budget film yeah that has led to the retirement of a lot of great filmmakers you know john waters no longer is he he said like i cannot get films made with the budget that i need right. you know because he needs about like 15 million to like 30 million you know something like that and and then you know lynch has made a similar comment yeah cronenberg has made a similar comment um and i think that you know What's unfortunate is it kind of leads to the necessity for someone like Amazon Prime or uh, Netflix or, um, to a lesser extent, Hulu. They haven't really cracked down on their filmmaking as much no. as, as much as the others. But um, you know, Netflix has reached out to these great auteurs and has said, you know, hey, if you want to make something, go for it. Um, and it's a shame, you know, because it leads to such great art, but it's almost like this trap where it's like, by doing this, you're going to be putting it on a smaller venue when like it could have benefit. Like, like I saw Roma in theaters. It was beautiful. Right. It was remarkable. I have had no desire to watch that film on Netflix since then because it just would not do it service. And I... And I'm really sad that I missed the uh, the run of the Irishman, and that was in theaters. Yeah, I got, and I got I saw to see it, it in the theaters at the uh, Egyptian, and it was great. Yeah, and and I I saw it you know at home, and I the entire time was thinking this would be better in a theater. Now, do do you think um, the solution is that is for like a Netflix to start buying theaters? 
Um, as much as that makes me just shudder with fear of, you know, monopolies um, and, you know, the idea of, of, you know, what is that considered, like, vertical integration right. that is just, like, dangerous. But, like, as much as it makes me uncomfortable, I think that that may be the next step so that there are these things, or at least partnerships, Something you know? where, like, um, even if it's a limited run, you know, I, I'm not even, I don't yeah. even think we should necessarily be against like, especially for smaller theaters. I, I don't know if this is possible. Maybe, maybe the, the, it's just not, but like, I even think some series would be worth watching in a theater environment. Well, you know, the, the last season of twin peaks, um, had its first two episodes premiere at, uh, the con film festival. And, um, you know, I can't imagine that, that, series is so cinematic you know even lynch himself himself has referred to it as a 19-hour film um and i believe at one point the moma i think it was the year anniversary of of the uh series the moma did a two-day um uh marathon uh where you were able to sit there and watch you know episodes one through um one through nine you know one day and then the next day you would come back and watch nine through 19 and um, uh, that kind of thing, you know, it makes sense to me, you know, if you were to do something along those lines. And I think that, you know, um, people enjoy a binging aspect of it. But if you were to have, I, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm hoping for a, a further merging of film and television, you know, in the same way that you see like Twin Peaks The Return yeah. or, um, or, you know, um, some other art house television shows like and i and i think it would be great if they did have maybe an edit that was shown in theaters you know or like dude, even like a reduced price like you know yeah. i mean you, i don't know that you could do with half hour series unless you did a several of them back to back i i've actually turned my tune my i've actually changed my tune as far as binging is concerned i actually am mostly against it i think there's something yeah. about letting you breathe with the material for a week before the next episode comes um, that is just really adds to the experience. But like, yeah. uh, if you had an hour long series, I don't know, game of Thrones, for example, or true detective or Watchmen. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's very good. If you, I'm in the middle of rewatching right now. It's so, good. yeah. So if, like if you, and again, maybe this is not a, a chain thing, but maybe like from some of these art house theaters, if you offered a ticket to watch an hour of Watchmen for like, I don't know, five bucks, yeah, dude, that'd be awesome. Like, like and not everyone's going to take you, advantage of it, but some people will. Yeah. Or if you did um, the AMC every year does the AMC uh, best picture playlist or best picture um, uh, matinee. Or I can't remember what it's called, but like what they'll do is back when it was only five nominees, they would do all of the movies in a day. And I used to go to that and it was it was a, a it was a lot you know, because you would be there all day. You would have to wake up at like seven um, and get there, and then you'd be there until you know eleven at night. But it was awesome. You know, you would watch all of the best picture nominees. And now what they do with since they've upped it to ten is they have split it in two for each day. So I can't. I, I can imagine. You know, if you're going to do something like that with the best picture nominees, then you know why not do something like that for. Um, a, a critically acclaimed series, you know, um, especially a series like Watchmen, like like Twin Peaks, like uh, even I think Hannibal was is which is just so is good. Uh, 
yeah, I highly recommend it if you're a fan of that universe, but, uh, and just a fan of TV and art. Um, they, um, they are shot in such a way that is more cinematic. So if you were to put them uh, on screen, you know, you wouldn't have issues of, uh, of um, conversion where you have a lot of, you know, kind of graininess or anything along right. those lines. You, you, you have something that is meant to be seen in such a cinematic way. And I think that that would actually be just truly remarkable, um, um, or at least, you know, uh, truly interesting. Um, and it may offer these things. And that's, you know, one thing that the Draft House has going for it is that they do do these kinds of things every once in a while, where they'll try something new, you know, they'll show something that's kind of um, not usually what one would consider, you know, showing at the uh, uh, at a theater. And the Draft House certainly has its problems, namely when it comes down to... Um, treatment of their employees but um uh i i think that you know that's something that they offer that a lot of other mainstream theaters do not uh same thing with you know with uh some art house theaters like they'll do a i, I think it was the the draft house who was doing i think a game of thrones watch uh-huh. um when it was in its last season where you were able to come in and actually watch an episode yeah, of it sounds ex- that sounds amazing so yeah like and and you have the sense of community there exactly you know, and you and have it, all and it doesn't have to be for everyone right if you if you prefer to watch at home you have that luxury but i do think that something is robbed from it especially for some of the more cinematic offerings and there are so many now in series form because filmmakers like you mentioned cronenberg and and uh david lynch and john waters they're not able to get the budgets for feature films and feature films man if you're an indie film like your chances of you making money are like nothing so like these series, these digital platforms that are offering money to people and are trying to get content, I think that even if it's some sort of special or limited edition type thing, I think that it will ultimately be the most rewarding way to view the, the, the content. And I think that if, um, if we keep moving away from theaters, and there's a lot of reasons as to why, I do think that some of the artistic credibility is going to get sacrificed. It's just, it's just the reality of it. You know, um, the movie is the same, but your attention span and your ability to absorb it in the meant in the way that it was meant is going to be sufficiently undercut. If you're only able to watch it at home. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This might be one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. It's super awesome. I think it's really relevant that we not only celebrate Joel Schumacher, uh, his life as a, as a filmmaker, but this film in particular as being something that is completely relevant and really important as we look outside, as we watch the news, as we see what is going on in the world around us to be able to understand it. I was telling my fiance that she should watch it just so she can understand the way America works. So thank you. I appreciate you coming on. And um, it was my pleasure. Absolutely. I want to plug the body. I don't know if that's available anywhere, yes. but if it is, let people know where they can watch it or when they can expect it. So um, as I, I, I discussed it last time that it was about to be like we had a fundraiser for it, um, which we hit our goal, you know, thanks to um, everyone. I really want to say thank you again to everyone who contributed, including you, man. I really appreciate that. Um, and we hit our goal, and it's since been – we submitted it to 12 festivals. Um, we heard back from two. Unfortunately, they were, they were no's, but, you know, there's still 10 to hear back from. I hear back from another one in two days. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where even if it doesn't um, make it to the festivals that I wanted to get into, I'm still really proud of what we made. And once and we great. hear back I've from all... I've seen it. It's really, really good. Thank, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and and once, once it's uh, hit its festival run, then I will be posting it online. Um, you know, I, I want people to be able to see it. And, and, of course, you can always reach out to me one-on-one. And I will I will do a private screening for you. Um, I've been doing that over Skype um, uh, or Zoom. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I recommend it. But, How can people reach you then? If someone is listening to this and they want to they want to watch the body and and have something of a I don't know if you do like a Q and A with it or or whatever. Um, how often do people get to watch a movie one on one with the filmmaker? You know this this will be an experience that people when you start making like fucking guardians of the galaxy 10 and like people will remember one day that they got to watch your one of your earliest student films uh and have a real one-on-one experience with you like what is what is the way for them to reach out to you um so i'm on uh social media as a at david ale venable um instagram and twitter are my my usuals um but yeah, we actually, you know, you're, you're a part of this. Um, I had a lot of friends who had uh, made films throughout the semester and uh, had also made films, you know, outside of the semester that were unfortunately unable to show them um, because of the situation going on with the pandemic. And so, you know, we did a, um, we did a Skype uh, festival um, where it was like an invite only thing. And, you know, we were all able to watch each other's work and it was really nice to see that and, and to get that Q and a afterwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, reach out to me on, uh, on Instagram or on Twitter, um, at David Ale Venable. Um, I think my current, <laughs> my current name on there, I think is, uh, David Ale Venable, uh, goth film dad. For some reason. <laughs> Yes, uh, I, my my friend um, congratulated the older students who had graduated by calling us all his film dads. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, please reach out, um, follow me on those things. It looks it, it looks like I'm more professional if I had more followers. I think you know? Yeah. so. You know. Well, yeah. Again, thank you for being on the show, and I wanna I wanna leave us with a quote that our friend Christopher Nedick from the Regrettable Century just posted on Facebook. And I just think it's perfect for what we're talking about. (laughs) This is a quote that he shared from J. Robert Oppenheimer. And it says, the optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears it is true. And with that, until next time, this has been the Grindhouse Podcast. Adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Fall of Le Petit Bourgeois Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Spotify.